Welcome to episode three of the Beyond Devices podcast. I'm Jan Dawson. I blog at Beyond Devices and also on Tech Pinions. And my co-host is Aaron Miller, who is a business school professor. He has a law degree and he's a fan of all things Apple. And uh, we're here for the third time now talking about uh, Apple and things related to Apple. And uh, we're following up this week on the conversation that we had last week about Apple's worldwide developer conference and some of the announcements that they made. So if you haven't listened to episode two yet, uh, we discussed quite a few of the announcements, some of the more uh, iOS, OS 10, and watchOS focused announcements then. But today we're going to be focusing more on some of the content related announcements, and specifically music in the first part of the show, uh, and then news later on in the show. And uh, again, in the middle of our show, we'll have our regular segment called Question of the Week. And we'll be talking specifically and doing a bit of a deep dive into one aspect of the music service, which is the new DJs that Apple has hired from various other places to serve as hosts and DJs on the Beats One radio station. So without further ado, let's jump into a discussion of the music announcements. And obviously the, the major announcement around music at WWDC was uh, the new music service and the subscription service that's been expected from Apple for a long time now. Um, as part of that, there are several elements. Um, there's the music subscription service itself and the way that that ties into your own music. There is this new uh, radio element to it, which builds on what Apple's done with iTunes radio in the past, but broadens it and now brings in a lot more human curation and these uh, pro high profile DJs uh, who we'll talk about in detail later on. And then there's this connect element as well, which is where artists can connect directly with their fans with videos and other exclusive content that might not be available anywhere else. Um, so there are these three elements and they were kind of all introduced together in something of a rush, to be honest, at the end of the event. Um, but, uh, you know, highly expected in some areas, some, some things that weren't perhaps quite so expected uh, later on. And I think there's a certain amount of um, unknownness about these announcements, too. I mean, we know roughly what they are in, in principle, but so much of the f whether this is going to succeed or fail will come down, I think, to the execution. Um, Aaron, did you have any kind of initial thoughts about all this? Yeah, well, I, you know, I think because this is all coming out of WWDC, I think the the performance aspect of this, right? Because every keynote gets criticized or praised based on its performance elements. A lot of people are really annoyed or put off by just the, I don't know, the general lack of polish for the music part of WWDC's keynote. I, you know, and, and, and watching it myself, I, I, I can't say that at the time it threw me off. I, I think Jimmy Iovine definitely looked out of place on stage. I, like the part when... He made th there was the part when he said that, you know, this music service is three things and a bunch of the developers in the room started laughing because they were thinking back to the iPhone announcement. And Ivan didn't even get that. He didn't understand. That's why these people were laughing. Right. He looks beside. I don't know if you remember this part. He looks behind him on the slide. Yeah. Sees it up on the slide and thought that's why everybody was laughing as yeah. though the slide had beat him to the, what he was saying. Mm hmm. Just kind of tone deaf, which is funny because it just feels so un-Apple-like, yeah, you absolutely. know, for somebody to not get the inside joke. I mean, mm -hmm. somebody on stage to not get the inside yeah, joke. Yeah, absolutely. It was a weird moment. Yeah. What did you think of Drake? I mean, I, I actually thought he came across as pretty intelligent. It wasn't that super polished. He seemed to be speaking off the cuff rather than, you know, reading off a script. But I actually quite enjoyed that part. But I know other, some other people responded badly to, to Drake's part of this. Yeah, it was a little meandering, but mm. I mean, he's not the first to do that. Right. When AT, you know, anytime, like, like, I don't know if you remember when the iPhone announced and AT, AT&T's exec was on stage mm. and, and how the, it just sort of, I don't know, it just didn't make sense or connect. It didn't feel like an Apple keynote in that right. moment. I think people were more forgiving 
because these are not Apple people, right? right. That's what's mm-hmm. troubling about Jimmy Iovine. And troubling is too strong of a word, but I think that was what was off-putting about Jimmy Iovine was this right. idea that, like, he's an Apple guy, yeah. and he's and he's not coming across at all like an Apple guy. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because he was very, you know, what's the word? He, he, he was very approachable. Like, he seemed genuine up there. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't the same kind of playfulness that the exe- Apple executives show on stage, you know. Like when you look at the way Craig Federighi, you know, kind of teases or the way he – or the way Eddie Q, you know, referenced Phil Schiller's birthday. Like that all felt genuine and approachable mm-hmm. and interesting, whereas Jimmy was – I don't know. He just felt – it was like he was out of place. Yeah. So. The irony is that Jimmy Iovine's been quite good on stage at the Code Conference, for example. So the Recode um, and his predecessors and the conferences that they have. He's been on stage a couple of times at those, and he's seemed quite relaxed and, and engaging and interesting as a speaker. And I think he's the, uh, he's the kind of uh, unusual speaker who seems more comfortable with unprepared remarks than he is with prepared remarks, if yeah. that makes sense. So most speakers kind of more comfortable with them. They know exactly what they're going to say. They have a script. They can stick to it. They feel very, very well prepared. And, and he just doesn't seem like that kind of a guy. And he seems like he's perhaps more yeah. comfortable in a more casual sort of interactive situation where he can speak off the cuff a little bit. Um, and so, yeah, it's unusual. Most people the other way around. But I, I feel like he's perhaps that guy who is more comfortable speaking off the cuff than he is, you know, speaking prepared remarks. Yeah, I think that's true. And, and you know, I think the people that, you know, sort of oversee these keynotes will be aware of that. I think they just gave him too much. You know, when they, when he's talking through the three elements of the service, sort of introducing the key features, mm-hmm. that's totally Eddie Q material. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Eddie would have been all over that, would have nailed it, would have felt natural and normal. Mm-hmm. I think they really should have just had Jimmy come up and, and, do, and just kind of opine about music generally, which is what he's good at. Right. You know, for a couple of minutes, get him on stage. He's an interesting personality, but I think you're spot on. I think they, you know, expecting him to, to work off a prompter was a bad idea. Mm. Yeah. So what about the content, as it were, of the uh, music service and <laughs> kind of the actual elements that were announced? I mean, I, I have to say in yeah. some ways this is, I mean, I, I'm always excited about new Apple hardware products, but this is kind of the new first new sort of software or service product that I'm genuinely excited about. I'm like, can't wait till the end of the month and I actually get to try this thing. And part of that for me is that, you know, in our, in our family, we use Spotify somewhat. We use um, Google Music as another sort of subscription service occasionally. Um, and, but we're also heavy users of iTunes as the place where our owned music lives. Um, and just hopping between those apps, trying to remember where stuff is. You know, my wife gets frustrated with the fact that the Beatles, for example, are in our owned library, but they're not on Spotify or any of the other services. Right. Um, sounds like they may be holdouts, so let's hold off on that detail. But, you know, the point being you have to hop around to find the stuff that you want. Um, there have been elements like, you know, if, if she's using Spotify because she's in the car, then I can't be using it at my desk because we have a one-user license. And so the fact that there's a family plan here for the Apple Music service is interesting too. But yeah, I just want to have all my music in one place. I want the music that I own and the music that I get through the subscription service to seamlessly interact. Uh, And as I've been kind of reading more about the DJs and so on, I'm kind of excited to start discovering music again and feel like it's going to live in the same place that all the music I already own does and not be in this other domain somewhere where I have to keep connecting back to it or hopping into a different app to find it if I want to listen to something I don't technically own yet. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of people are undervaluing that aspect of this, of having everything in one place. I mean, you know, Spotify, I think, appreciated this need from the beginning of having all mm-hmm. your music in one place. And they have that kind of kludgy way to sort of suck in your iTunes library, which right. 
I'll be honest, I turned off as soon as it started because I didn't even know what the implications were, right? I didn't right. know, like, yeah. what it was going to mean for Spotify to pull in my iTunes. Was I going to be duplicating files? Like, mm. what about the protected files from way back when, you know, when I bought my music back when they were protecting files on the on the iTunes store? Yeah. Like, there's a lot about that that made me nervous. It, it is really appealing to have all your music in one place. And and like you said, even if you've just been streaming a new album lately, you know, you may not want to buy it, but you might, there might be one or two songs that are just catchy and, you know, you're going to burn through them quickly. So why buy the mm-hmm. album or the songs? Right. So, yeah, I think having it all in one place is going to be a big deal. It's something mm-hmm. that people haven't been talking about nearly as much. Yeah, yeah, and I've always felt like that's kind of one thing that Apple could do really well that nobody else can quite match. I mean, Spotify's had a way to get your music in. Google's had a way to get your music in. Microsoft had a way to get their music in. But they were all, you know, bringing it in from somewhere else. And, and you know, for Apple users, they're used to just having stuff show up naturally and, and working super well and very easily and intuitively. None of those things have been a great fit. So I wonder if this will really make a meaningful difference for people who are pretty invested into iTunes, whether on a Mac or an iPhone or an, even a Windows machine. Um, to, to just kind of add this functionality to it. Yeah, and that's a lot of people, especially mm. because they're adding the Android app later this year. Yeah. You know, there are a lot of Android users who started out with iTunes before, you know, smartphones were even around. Sure. And so they have an iTunes music library that they want to use. And, um, you know, this is it, depending. This is the interesting thing. You know, I, I'm curious what sort of features are going to be on the Android app mm-hmm. versus the iOS app. Like, for example, you know, is the full iTunes store there? Like, like, is it? How's it going to sync? Is it going to sync with your iTunes library on your right. on your computer? I mean, those are those are interesting details that yeah. we won't know anything about for a few months. But um, I, you know, I think. Uh, I mean, Apple has a lot of iTunes accounts. Sure. Like yeah. more Hundreds than of millions you know, of them, yeah, yeah, more than any other single service out mm-hmm. there, like by an order of magnitude. Yeah, and it's it's just it's this massive momentum. I think what's interesting about Apple for this is the switch to a subscription model. I think they're going to hook a lot more people than uh, is maybe originally expected. You know, Recode last year had not, I was pulling this up as I was kind of doing some reading on it. Recode mm-hmm. had an article last year in March, so in 2014, and it was it was about average um revenue per itunes account oh yeah and you know people are paying like an average annual amount of somewhere between 30 to 50 dollars you know with music they're buying on itunes Mm -hmm. you know if i'm if i'm paying 10 to 15 bucks a month on on you know this new apple music subscription that's a lot of new revenue for apple depending on how many people they get to sign up and the big, big question is you know how does that average spend go up or down um because what that average spend is composed of is probably some heavy users that are buying one or two albums a month for whom a $10 spend a month would actually be lower than what they're spending now. Um, but then plenty of other users who probably hardly buy any music during the course of the year maybe are using, say, the free version of Spotify or something today. The question is, you know, do you bring just the top end of that down, people who buy multiple albums a month and now go to a $10 a month subscription, or do you also bring people up from the bottom, people who've never seen the need to pay for subscription music before and who now do perhaps? Right. So I think that, that dynamic will be really interesting to watch. Um, but, but, you know, you've got, you know, 400 to 500 million iPhone users that you could convert some percentage of to paying users, and they're all going to have a three-month free trial, and it's going to be pre-installed on their phone. So it's going to be a great starting point for trying to build a pretty significant base of subscription music users. Yeah, I agree. You know, I think it's going to be dragging that number up only because a lot of other media companies have been breaking ground for Apple in this. I mean, not mm-hmm. just Spotify and RDO and the others, but also on the TV, say, like Hulu, you know, with their right. Hulu Plus service. 
um, the uh, uh, people are getting more accustomed to you know paying out eight bucks a month or ten bucks a month for you know this sort of like all you can eat media consumption and right and I think I think three months is a really generous. Yeah, absolutely. Most of these services give you a month. Yeah, trial. But the mm-hmm. but the thing about that trial is three months is I think long enough to get you where you can't imagine not having it. Anymore. Yes, I think, <laughs> and I think that's the key here. Absolutely. And I wonder I mean, if Apple's a, eating some of the cost of that. Presumably, it is. But it's, well, that's it's the a thing great is, way to get you hooked. So it hit the news that there's some British independent artists like Adele who I guess are kind of holding out in the negotiations because mm-hmm. Apple has said that they're not going to be paying royalties for any of the trial lessons. So if you're if you're a trial user and you and you're getting, you know, like if you're a trial user you're listening to this music, those artists are not being compensated for the trial. And Apple's argument is that they're going to make up for it, you know, because they pay slightly more than Spotify by like 1 right. or 2%. But yeah. uh, well, they pay a lot more than what Spotify plays on ad-supported listens, and that's the other oh, thing. Yeah. That's a huge differentiation from an artist perspective. Is they may pay a fairly similar, albeit maybe slightly higher, amount for paid subscription listening, but they don't have a free tier. So you know, if somebody listens to a song on this service, you know, once the trials are over, the the payoff is going to be much higher for the artists. Yeah, I, you know, when speaking of Spotify, I think there is one way that that Apple Music seems to be behind Spotify, and that's in the social side. Yeah, I mean, it evokes all these horrible memories of Ping, right, mm-hmm. and how terrible Ping was. But yeah. but the truth is, you know, a lot of people really like the sharing aspects of Spotify, right? That I can create like a playlist mm-hmm. in Spotify and share it with with other people, and if I add songs to the list, they see those songs. There's, you know, I think there are a lot of Spotify users who really appreciate that, and I'm not seeing anything. Yeah, like there's that a page. There's the a page Apple on the Apple Music site that talks about uh, social and sharing and that kind of thing, and it talks about being able to share playlists via iMessage or email to Facebook and Twitter and that kind of thing. So there is a sharing element, but I think the big difference will probably be that with Spotify, the sharing happens within the service. Right. So if you're connected to somebody, you see stuff that they do automatically within the context of the service. Whereas with Apple Music, it's going to be explicit sharing on a one-to-one basis. Where I explicitly decide to share this playlist with this person at maybe kind of a one-time event. Uh, and they can go to a link, and if they have the app, it'll open up in their app and so on. They can maybe add it to their own library. But it, it's less of an ongoing sharing, more of an, less of an ongoing social right. aspect and more of a one-off kind of like the share sheets in, in iOS. Uh, right. leveraging that essentially and I, I still think you know obviously anybody using Apple Music is probably also going to be using iMessage at least until the Android version shows up so there are some obvious connections there but I'm curious to see you know, Apple's never done social particularly well Game Center is probably the closest thing they have to what we're talking about here you know do they create something like Game Center where there's a connection within the context of the app itself and I haven't seen the evidence of that yet yeah, I, it'll be interesting to see. You know, I, I do think it luckily for Apple, it's, it's not a killer feature, right? Mm-hmm. It's not the one that's going to drive people over to Spotify, mm-hmm. I, especially when you look at the convenience offered. You know, another convenience aspect we haven't talked about yet is the Siri integration. Yes. I think for people who drive, having the entire, close to the entire iTunes library, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, like within the reach of Siri is going to be amazing. 
I mean, you know, any really any song like you could be like you're on a road trip right now. And, mm-hmm. Right. And, you yeah. know, to be able to just like to tell Siri, you know, hey, I want to listen to this song. That's not in my library. You know, my wife and I are having a conversation and we're disagreeing about the lyrics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, to just have it right there at your fingertips, you know, well, fingertips, yeah. you know, with yeah. Siri, just yeah. one simple Siri request and you're both listening to the song immediately. That's that's super powerful. And I think that's um, going to be a really compelling feature for a lot of people, especially those that commute. Yeah, absolutely. Anybody that spends a lot of time in the car, which is still where a lot of radio listening happens. Um, I think that's going to be very relevant. And I think the natural language stuff that they've built into the Siri control of Apple Music is a big deal, too. So it's not you don't have to know the exact name of the album or anything like that. You can be a bit vague and it will still figure out what you mean, at least as shown on stage during the demos and so on. And I think that could be a big deal, too. You know, there's many a time when I've been in the car and I just end up playing the same old stuff because I know exactly how to find it on my phone. Right. But when you've got, you know, 20, 30 gigs of music on your phone, it's often very hard to find a specific album if you're having to go through manually with your thumb. And if you're driving, you don't want to do any of that, really. And, you know, at the moment, you can say play an artist and it will shuffle all their songs or play a specific album. But it has to be stuff you own today. And expanding right. that to anything that's out there would be a huge uh, improvement. I, I picture a lot of arguments and bets in bars and at parties <laughs> being settled with Siri, right? Yes, I mean, people yeah, pulling their absolutely. phone out and saying, yeah. whatever, no, the top song when we graduated was X, right? Oh, ADQ <laughs> did with 1982 yeah, right. or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, go back graduated. by date or whatever. Yeah, yeah. No, it's interesting. I mean, we're at, um, we are on a road trip, as you mentioned just now. And we're right now we're at my wife's sister's house. And her husband has this phrase that he used to use when we talked to stuff, which was take it to the web. Like if you're having an argument, <laughs> like you couldn't settle it between you. And he'd say, let's take it to the web. And you go and search on Google or Wikipedia or whatever and find the answer. And I feel like take it to Siri is kind of the next evolution of that potentially when oh, it comes yeah. to uh, music tracks. Um, the last thing I want to discuss quickly before we move on to the question of the week is this connect element. Um, which is about allowing artists to connect with fans. Um, so we talked about the social element between fans, as it were, or between listeners to the service, but we didn't talk about this side where artists can connect with fans and share exclusive content with them. Um, it's interesting to me to kind of think about SoundCloud and YouTube, which is where a lot of artists have been discovered from you know, Justin Bieber to goodness knows who else. You know, They start out on, on SoundCloud or YouTube and then they get discovered and then they move to a record label. And oftentimes that sort of... Sh- ex- um, intimate sharing with fans stops at that point because everything suddenly goes through the label now uh, and that that becomes the only channel that stuff can go through and and a lot of that gets shut down and there's the odd artist like taylor swift that still communicates through social media directly and so on Um, but they're the exception rather than the rule and even that feels often quite produced Um, so i feel like connect could be an interesting bridge between the kind of intimate sharing that artists do when they're undiscovered and when they're not yet with the label all the way through to the massive kind of grammy award-winning or platinum album selling um, artists who still want to connect with their fans in the same kind of way without necessarily having this huge label in between them and the fans and be able to connect in this direct way. Um, so there's a theory there that I think I really like about this and I think it could be quite compelling. But as with almost every other aspect of what we've been talking about, so much will come down to how it actually works in practice. Yeah, you know, when it comes to that, I, the, the, it's hard to imagine anybody doing artist discovery better than YouTube. Mm-hmm. Only because people embed videos, right? I mean, you can share a YouTube right. video on Facebook. It's embedded in your Facebook feed. Um, people like write it within Facebook and click on the video and get a little preview of the artist you like. I mean, I, I, that happens to me all the time. You know, mm-hmm. a friend will recommend to his friends a, a song that he's enjoying recently, and it's almost always a YouTube video. Right. You know, I, I don't know if Apple's planning on doing 
like the Connect content being embeddable that way. Like mm-hmm. there's going to be a, essentially a web-facing version of, right. of the Connect service. I think it's a huge mistake if they don't do that because I don't think of iTunes as a place where I go read. Right. And, and I think most people don't, especially mm-hmm. like the whole Siri thing we were talking about. You know, if I don't even have to go into iTunes, that's a that's a bonus for me. Sure. Yeah. And so thinking of iTunes as a place to go consume content other than just listening to music. Mm-hmm. I don't know that it feels it feels weird. It, we, we live a lot in our web browsers still. And mm-hmm. uh, I really think Apple, if they're not thinking about it, I think they should just to make that content web facing because I think it's going to have a harder time getting around yeah. if it's not like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's another element where the social side becomes really important, and I want, and but also the web element. And Apple hasn't done a lot on the web. I mean, they've done some stuff that's sort of for you personally as a user with iCloud and so on with the web, especially for Windows users lately. Right. Um, but they haven't done a lot that's sort of public facing. You know, there are individual pages for iTunes, but if you actually want to buy anything or anything like that, you have to go into the iTunes app on whichever device you're using. Um, and so it would be a departure for them to do that. And so I'm curious to see if they do go in that direction. Yeah. Um, so the third element we kind of skipped over, but because this is going to be the question of the week today, um, is Beats One and this new radio station that, that Apple announced. And they announced several DJs for this. They announced it's going to be th- broadcasting from three different cities around the world. And this is one of the most uh, interesting aspects to me. And I think in part because we don't know a lot about these DJs. A lot of us, if you happen to live in the UK, uh, where Zane Lowe is very well known, for example, you might know a bit about him. But I think for a lot of people, the names will have been unfamiliar. And so that's kind of what we're focusing on this week for our question of the week. Yeah, and I'm glad we're doing this because uh, I'll be honest, they got the, those DJs got a lot of attention <clears throat> from Apple during the, the keynote on the web page for the Apple Music Service. They're getting a lot of attention. I mean, they, they essentially did a whole ad just around the Beats One radio, you know, like yeah. it's a really cool ad. The whole idea it of is, this big neat. shared radio experience. I think it's cool. It makes me think of what MTV used to be like, hmm. um, you know, back in the '80s when it was actually a music right. uh, station. But uh, y- you know, I, I'm glad we're talking about these DJs because it 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 just made me wonder, like, am I going to trust my time to them? You know, if if I right. turn on Beats yeah. One. You know, like, are these DJs going to be bringing me music that, that I like? I'm sure there's always going to be stuff I don't like. That's just the nature of one, you know, worldwide share radio station. But, uh, you know, it, it's going to be really curious to know what their judgment is. So, te- so yeah, and tell us what you know. I mean, I guess we'll start with Zane Lowe because he seems to mm-hmm. be the headliner. Like, what, what, what do you know about him? Yeah, so I, I knew some about him already. I kind of encountered him here and there, but um, I didn't know that much about him. And so I spent quite a bit of time this week looking into him and the other two as well. Um, I am from the UK originally, and so I'm somewhat familiar with BBC Radio, which is where Zane Lowe has been for the last few years uh, and has become really a prominent personality. And just by way of background, if you think BBC, if you're not familiar with the BBC, it's the British Broadcasting Corporation. If you're an American listener, the best way I can explain it is it's like NPR and PBS rolled into one and then put on steroids. Um, So it's this huge, huge um, TV and radio company um, that's effectively government owned. It kind of runs at arm's length from the government, but it runs both TV and radio. It has national and then local aspects to it. And one of the things it has is five major national radio stations, and they're numbered. So there's Radio 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. Radio 1 is where Zane Lowe was, and that's mostly kind of youth-oriented. It's pop and rock. It's kind of top 40, 
um, you know, really mainstream stuff. And that's where he was. And he was on their evening show for quite a number of years. Uh, Radio 2 is kind of other genres of music, some adult contemporary, middle of the road type stuff and some non-music stuff. There's Radio 3, which is kind of highbrow music like classical and jazz and that kind of thing. And then Radio 4 and 5 and news and talk radio and then sports. Um, and as a kid, I grew up listening to Radio 1 a lot, and especially on Sunday afternoons when they do the Top 40 countdown. Um, and I'd record that uh, on cassette and make mixtapes <laughs> off what I recorded off the radio. So Radio 1's a very familiar kind of brand to me, even though I haven't lived in the UK for some time now. Um, but also in the UK, you have a whole range of other stations, um, which are local for the most part in individual cities. Some of those stations are starting to roll up operations in multiple different cities, but BBC is about the only station that's national. And what's interesting about Zane Lowe is he's born in New Zealand, so he's not a Brit. I think a lot of people assumed he was English, but he's actually a New Zealander. But he came to the UK in 1997 uh, and was there until earlier this year when he moved to LA to, to work for Apple. Um, but he came to prominence on a combination of two things, MTV Europe um, mm -hmm. as a TV show called Gonza, Gonzo, excuse me, uh, which was kind of their flagship music show, which he did from 2002 to, to this year. And then XFM was a radio station based in London at the time um, that really was his first job on the radio. But even before that, he worked in a record store uh, in London. And so he kind of got this very kind of retail experience in music, sort of talking to individual customers about records and that kind of thing. Went from there to XFM, which gave him kind of a, a citywide platform, if you like. And then when he moved from XFM to the BBC Radio 1 later on, uh, he described that as kind of the opportunity to move from a city to a national platform. And in talking about Beats One lately, he's talked about making that same transition, but from national to global now. So it's kind of an interesting transition for him. But he's been something of a tastemaker at Radio One. So he's uh, all about discovering and launching new artists. Um, he's very sort of lively and enthusiastic. And, and frustratingly, it's very hard to find uh, good clips of him actually presenting his Radio One show. But it was extremely popular. And one of the things that was sort of unique about it was that he would uh, react very audibly to the music that he was playing. He would sort of have <laughs> wows and yes and stuff like that. And he'd talk over the radio. And traditionally, DJs will fade out and fade in music and yeah. talk over the intro and outro. But he just talked over it at full blast if he needed to, uh, just to kind of react to stuff as it was on the air. And so he's, he's an enthusiast. He's not kind of a critic for criticism's sake. He doesn't throw stuff under the bus very easily. He mostly plays stuff that he liked and told you why he liked it. And so I think that's why Apple's hired him is because he's really a, a tastemaker. He's somebody who's enthusiastic about music. And what Apple really needs from a guy in this position is somebody who can really kind of plug new music, get people wanting to tune in to discover new stuff. Um, he's launched a bunch of artists uh, off his show in the UK. He's done some other interesting stuff too. So he's interviewed a bunch of artists like Kanye West and Jay-Z and Chris Martin and Eminem. And maybe we'll see some of that on Beats One. Did this interesting feature where he'd... Um, really focus on a specific kind of uh, album um, from a major artist and really deep, deep dive into it. He'd play the whole album and dissect it on the air and talk about it and its influences and stuff like that. So he's done some really interesting stuff uh, on the air. And he's also uh, a performance DJ. So he actually goes out and does shows and that kind of stuff on the road and, and performs for crowds and stuff. So he's a really interesting mix of, of talents. But he's also kind of the head of this team. And, and Apple's marketing materials makes it sound as if Zane Lowe is also the one that picked the other two J DJs and brought those to Apple as well. That's really fascinating. Tell me about, uh, so the other two are Ebro Darden and, and Julieta Nuga. Yeah. Um, let's start with Ebro Darden because um, he seems American, right? In fact, I think he's based he in is. New York. Yeah, so he's, he's African-American. He grew up in California uh, in Oakland and Sacramento. 
um, and, but has been in New York for a long time now. Um, as He was the uh, station director for Hot 97, which is a major hip-hop show uh, station excuse me, in New York, um, and also hosted the morning show. And last year, he stepped down from the kind of management position that he had, but has been hosting the morning show still. So it's a very hip-hop-focused station and show that he's had. So where Zane Lowe is kind of this mainstream guy, kind of covers a lot of different genres that are just in the kind of broad category of popular music and top 40 and that kind of stuff. Uh, Ebro Darden's much more narrowly focused, and he's one of the kind of, I mean, it sounds funny to say he's in his early 40s, but he's kind of one of the old men of hip-hop at this point, mm-hmm. um, where he's one of the arbiters of what counts as real hip-hop. Uh, and Radio Lab does this fascinating um, uh, episode a while back uh, about hip hop and this other DJ at Hot 90, uh, Hot 97 is called Peter Rosenberg. He's this white Jewish guy, um, <laughs> but he's like one of their major DJs and he's become one of the major arbiters of what counts as real hip hop, even though he's he's not African American and therefore doesn't necessarily uh, get identified with the culture that's behind so much of hip hop. But he, the two of them are somewhat controversial, whereas Zane Lowe seems to be kind of universally loved and a pretty um, easygoing kind of guy and, and mostly positive about music. These guys, including Ebro Darden, has kind of presided over a number of controversies about hip-hop and which direction it should go in and what counts as real hip-hop and that kind of stuff. So he's potentially a more controversial figure and more interesting in that way. He's got a lot of experience. He's been doing radio since he was 15, which means he's been doing it for about 25 years at wow. this point. Um, he and Zane Lowe are about the same age, but you know, obviously Zane Lowe's been in London, uh, Ebro Darden's in New York, and he's kind of the New York face of Beats One and, and it's supposed to be representing the New York scene, but I sense that the focus is really going to be on hip hop and rap and, and genres related to that rather than kind of broad swathe of stuff that Zane Lowe will be presenting. Right. What what about Julieta Nuga? What yeah, she's a she's, Brit too? Or I guess uh, she she is, yeah. She's she's a Brit of Nigerian extraction. Um she's fascinating because she's much younger. So the other two are both in their early forties. She's twenty six. Wow. Um, and when the announcement was made a couple of weeks ago, she had fewer Twitter followers than I did. Um, <laughs> so she was not this, you know, very well-known personality. Even now she has about 6,000 Twitter followers. And um, she's a relative newcomer. She started as a DJ in 2010 on a station called Rinse FM in London. And Rinse was a pirate radio station for many years. And only shortly after she joined, it finally got its first license. So for many years, it was operating out of people's bedrooms and having to move around to avoid getting caught by the police and that kind of thing and kind of went legit um, shortly after she joined in 2010. And she just kind of got this opportunity with another DJ to start hosting a show with almost no experience, but has very quickly become very popular. And she's a bit like Ibro Darden in that she has a specific genre that she focuses on, and that's um, the kind of London club scene, and specifically uh, what's known as grime music, which is not a genre I was familiar with, I have to confess. Um, But it's grown out of the UK version of garage music, um, and it's kind of evolved from that. And what happens with these genres is um, they, they take off among a certain community and then they get commercialized and mainstreamed and the artists tend to kind of move on to a new genre. And that's kind of what happened with Garage is once that became mainstream and commercialized and bought up by the labels, a lot of the musicians and up-and-coming musicians especially started to morph the sound a little bit and it became what's now known as grime. And actually, Julie Adenuga's two brothers are some of the biggest names in grime music as musicians. Um, so she's kind of from this musical family, um, but she's young. Um, she's she's well respected in this particular 
kind of sphere that she's in. Um, Apple talks about her representing kind of the London music scene, and that's kind of her role. Uh, one of my favorite quotes that I found in the research that I did um, said, her drive time rinse FM show became scientifically proven as the only thing that could make you smile on your way home on a London bus. <laughs> so she's quite fun. She's very kind of like Zane Lowe, very easygoing. Um, you know, a fun sort of personality. She's done lots of interesting interviews with figures from the grime scene in particular. Um, but yeah, so again, a, a narrower focus from a genre perspective. Um, so Zane Lowe is kind of the global mainstream guy. Ebro Darden's going to be kind of hip hop and rap focused, I suspect. Julie Adenuga more, more focused on the London club music scene and, and those particular genres that she's focused on in the past. Um, so an interesting mix in that sense. So how much, I mean, so it's interesting because when you listen to a radio station, you're trusting them with your time, right? Mm. Especially as it relates to music discovery. Yeah. You know, there's a certain level of trust that has to come into it. There, there are people who would recommend music to me that I would never trust right. because I know their taste, right? I mean, how, how, how much do you think like Apple users or I should say Apple music users, right? Because with the Android upcoming, I mean, how much trust do you think we put in, in these three DJs to give them our time with Beats One? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Radio 1 um, and especially the evening show that Zane Lowe had, I think was a great launch pad for the kind of stuff he's going to be doing. Um, and I think for people that like to discover kind of um, pop rock, kind of adult alternative or indie or whatever you want to call it, it has different names in different parts of the world. There's kind of fairly mainstreamy stuff. And then the, the stuff from other genres that breaks into the mainstream, um, you know, that, that stuff, I think people will trust him a great deal because I think that's what he's been doing for the last few years, first at XFM and then at Radio 1. I think the other two are much more focused on particular genres. And I think that's really important because people who re are really into those genres don't want a generalist. They want somebody who really gets that world, who has respect and credibility within that world. The big question it raises, though, for, my, for me is kind of what other genres are going to be covered in this way? Do we get a jazz right. DJ at some point? Do we get a classical DJ? Do we get you know, people that specialize in other specific subgenres of music so that they have the same credibility over time? Um, and I'm also not completely clear about how these three stations are actually going to quote unquote broadcast and how you're going to be able to listen to them, you know, with one DJ per station, clearly they're not going to be broadcasting 24 hours a day. So how is that going to work? How are you going to be able to listen to this? Will there be a new show every day or a few days a week? I mean, Zane Lowe was doing four days a week, I think. Um, so, you know, th these guys are not obviously going to be doing 24-7 radio shows. So how will that work? And there's lots of questions I have about exactly how this will work that, that haven't become totally clear uh, from the research that I've done so far. Yeah, they haven't given many details on that. I, I kind of imagine, because of the geographic distribution, right, you had London to New York mm -hmm. to L.A., yeah. I kind of pictured this sort of band where, you know, Juliet Anuga hands off to Ibro Darden, he mm -hmm. hands off to Zane Lowe, and that's sort of like the weekly, you know, sort of like weekday kind of programming. Right, yeah. It'll be interesting to see what other talent, because it also seems like the personalities matter a lot, not just their taste mm -hmm. in music. Yeah. I mean, from what you've described, it sounds like Zane Lowe is the kind of person you enjoy listening to talk, not just mm -hmm. not just listening yeah. to the music that he chooses. He's an entertainer in his own right. Yeah, yeah and it'll be interesting. You know, and it, it, I'm curious how they'll fill in those gaps because obviously, you know, these guys, these three DJs can't work, you know, like you said, 24-7. Yeah. So. yeah, and whether Apple will fill in the rest with stuff they've chosen but don't necessarily present or whether you'll just be able to get sort of two to three hours of new original content every day and then the rest will be algorithmic or I, I don't know. That's one of the kind of unknowns here. Yeah, you know, I, I think um, – the whole shared experience, the shared global experience is a really interesting angle for Apple to take on this. 
I mean, they, they, they're obviously putting a lot of energy into it. They, I mean, like we mentioned earlier, they dedicated a whole advertisement to it. Right. Um, you know, I'm curious how that's going to play out. I, I definitely find the idea appealing. There's something, there's mm-hmm. a feeling of like listening to the same music that people all around the world are listening to at the exact same time. Yeah. Yeah. The live element's interesting. Yeah. I, I, you know, in fact, I think that ad they did was pretty evocative that way. Mm-hmm. But yeah. uh, I don't know. You know, you, you travel the world, uh, other countries I've been to, there are definitely very different tastes in music to, mm-hmm. you know, what I encounter around here. So, yeah. It, interesting. It'll be interesting to see how that works in practice. Yeah, yeah. The the uh, IFPI, the International Federation of the Phonographic Industry, does a report every year about music trends and that kind of thing. A lot of it's about numbers, but one of the most interesting charts they had, I think last year's report, had a chart of what percentage of some of the charts in different countries around the world was was music from that country, and it's quite high. Yeah. Um, there, there clearly are, you know, the Beyonces and the Madonnas and the Sam Smiths and so on that, that go global in a really big way. Um, but there are also lots of artists that never break out of their own country and who are enormously important in turn to listeners in that country. And so that's another element of right. this that I would imagine we'll see over time is more localization. I just, you know, it's interesting. I bet, I bet at any given point, this is just conjecture on my part, but it wouldn't surprise me if at any given point you could only, you know, the, the songs that are truly globally popular, you could probably count on one hand. Right. I yeah. mean, the song that's like penetrated into multiple continents that right. everybody in all these countries is listening to. It'll be interesting to see how Beats One changes that, if at all. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, yeah. are there, there going to be, you know, 40 songs that, mm-hmm. you know, everybody around the world is listening to? Right. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. No, it'll be very interesting to watch. This is a, I have to say, this is one element that I'm really curious to see how it actually works in practice and how much, how much, how important a part it becomes of, of the Apple Music service. Right. Um, so last few minutes, let's talk about the other big content announcement at WWDC, which was news and the news app that Apple launched. Um, you know, this was something that, you know, there was no real rumor about ahead of time, which is kind of ironic, right? Because it involved a bunch of news publications, but, um, <laughs> uh, but no news really leaked. There was a story the morning of, I think from Recode, but that was about it. And, uh, and yet, you know, it's an interesting thing. And it's the initial comparison that everybody made was to Flipboard. Um, I've never been a fan of Flipboard, I have to say, and, and I generally haven't really engaged much with general kind of news aggregation apps. And so I'm very curious to see whether this changes that. Um, but it's it's an interesting shift for Apple, too, because Apple's really getting back into content through music and, and not just, you know, playing other people's music, but beats with a real human curation and creating its own content in that sense with Connect. It's going to be unique and somewhat exclusive content, I think, as well, and the music side. And now with news, which, again, is aggregating people's content, but in, in its own app, its own storefront, as it were, and there's an evolution as well of newsstand, which was basically just a, an app folder disguised as a, as a literal newsstand in the original implementation. Um, you know, it's interesting to see app, Apple diving deeper into content in some of these ways and perhaps owning that experience a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's a unique sort of proposition because it's all about connecting with certain... Um, news publications directly and getting them to feed content in, in a specific format, but also is potentially open to any kind of content through an RSS feed um, from the rest of the web as well. Yeah, you know, the format thing is an interesting one. I, I went in, I dug into the developer documents on, on the news app because Apple's trying to recruit publishers now. And mm. the, the, the Apple News format that they kind of made a big deal out of on stage uh, there are zero details out. In fact, they haven't even said when the Apple News format is going to be available. Right. You sort of get a feeling that it's going to be in the coming months, but uh, and I can't imagine them going much later than that. You know, because they're going to want to have stuff 
they're going to want to have content ready when iOS 9 ships. But uh, but it's funny because this Apple News format right now is a is almost a total mystery. I imagine they're drawing somewhat on the textbook stuff. Um, yes, the iBook you know, the, stuff. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the iBook publisher seems like there's going to be a lot of technology they can borrow from that, or at least concepts right. they can borrow from that. But yeah. uh, uh, you know, it's right now it's funny how that that Apple News format seems like a pivotal ingredient, and there's so little known about it right now. Yeah. Yeah, and I wonder if this is another example of something where Apple had to announce early because the more people knew about it, the more likely news was to break, and and yet it won't be ready for a couple of months, presumably to launch simultaneously with or shortly right. before iOS 9 does. In fact, that made me wonder if this is the reason they're tying it to iOS 9. Um, yeah. Because why not have it just be an app like the music app? I mean, yeah. at the mm-hmm. end of the month, everybody can download the new iTunes and, and right. be using Apple Music. But And it's not clear to me why iOS 9 would be a necessary element for the news app. I wonder if they're just married because of that delay, the necessary timeline. delay. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah it may well be the case. I mean, it's funny, though, something that struck me as I went to I.O. and then WWDC is, um, you know, with Apple, much of the functionality doesn't change a great deal except in the next version of iOS. So a lot of the functionality is in individual apps. Some of it's in things like Siri and so on that are OS-level stuff. But a lot of the functionality doesn't tend to change dramatically until there's a new version of iOS. Whereas at Google, the apps have become more and more disconnected from the operating system such that you right. know the operating system announcement at I.O., you know, it was focused on f- polish and, and, and that kind of stuff, but it was also really evident how much the functionality now exists in apps separately. Uh, they get updated independently of the OS. And part of that's that Google has no control over when the OS actually gets updated for most users. Um, part of it's right. that some of its functionality is available on other platforms, like the new Google Photos app, for example. So it's kind of a contrast in the way these companies do things. But you're right, you know, music's going to be updated at the end of June, whereas news probably won't show up until iOS 9. So um, you know, they're, they're sticking with the pattern, at least as far as news is concerned, whatever the reason might be. Yeah. You know, two, there are two other things that are really interesting to me about news. Um, mm-hmm. One is the way they're integrating RSS. Um, you know, th- there's a blogger, Mike Ash, who blogs a lot on programming, like really high-level stuff that most, most people wouldn't, you know, have a need to read. But he's got a dedicated reader base um, because he covers really in-depth programming topics in a way that's really useful to people. Right. Anyway, he posted on his blog this week about how he got a, an, an anonymous, or rather, it's sort of like a form letter from Apple via email, essentially saying, hey, we're going to take your RSS feed and we're going to plug it into our news app. If you're not okay with that, let us know. Right. And uh, it was an interesting conflict for him because he's sort of annoyed, like, wait, so if I don't reply to this email, it's me giving you permission? Like, that seems hardly a legally binding agreement. But mm-hmm. on the same hand, he's he's putting his RSS feed out there which, right. you know, is intended for people to drag into whatever they're using to, to read the news. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I, I, it's interesting because so and this ties into the second thing I want to bring up, which is the monetization issue. Mm. There's no subscription model built into news. So like the New York Times, you know, right. if they want to give exclusive content, I- exclusive access to certain readers who pay a subscription, they can't do it through the news app yet. Mm-hmm. I can picture that coming someday, but that's not the yeah. plan right now. All of, the, all of the revenue for any publisher is intended to come through advertising. Yeah. And it's from what I've read, although the, the the Apple site is a little cryptic on this, from what I've read, it can only come, the only revenue comes through iAd content, meaning there's no other advertising platform that mm-hmm. you can use baked into the news app. 
And if you if you're pumping your stuff into the news app via RSS, like if you're a publisher and you're just using RSS to get your stuff mm-hmm. in there, they specifically said that that you cannot use IAD with RSS feeds. So you have to be producing in the Apple News format right. in order to get any advertising revenue. Because that that was mm-hmm. the question I had. Like if I can put if I'm publishing a blog and I can put my stuff into the news app via RSS, why would I care about the Apple News format? Right. Well, the, the answer is that's the <laughs> so only way to get, get advertising revenue. revenue. Right. <laughs> so, huh. I mean, I don't know if that's technologically necessary, but it certainly mm. makes the Apple News format more compelling. Yeah, I'm intrigued to see what happens with the RSS feeds too, because a lot of RSS feeds these days are either truncated or contain ads, either you know at the beginning of posts or as posts, yeah. um, because you get sponsored stuff like Daring Fireball is a good example of that. You know, every. 10th or 15th post or whatever is a sponsored post um you know of the the week's sponsor and and either directly from them or john gruber's kind of summary of what they offer or whatever um you know the rss approach seems to potentially preclude that i don't know exactly how that will work whether it'll somehow be magically stripped out or whether you'll occasionally see those sponsor posts in your your news app you know that's interesting stuff and and maybe that's where another element comes in which we'll just talk about briefly here at the end which is human curation which is obviously a major element of the music service with the beats djs and so on that we talked about but is also uh, it's becoming clear has a role in the news app too because apple's actually hiring editors and you you read something about this this week Aaron. yeah you know and the editor question is going to be an interesting one right because they there are two directions apple could go with these news editors that they're hiring it could they could go the music direction where they get really sophisticated, experienced editors who are essentially curating much in the same way that these DJs are curating in Apple Music. Mm-hmm. Or they could go the App Store route, right, where they have right. human beings who are essentially reviewing news articles that come in, no special training. They're following some rules. There's a lot of arbitrariness. Right. There's a lot of delay, unnecessary delay. And it'll be interesting to see which direction this goes. I mean, are the editors really going to be curating Right. Or are they is simply going to be, you know, running through a task list the way I imagine most of the app review people are doing? Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so, yeah, obviously, I kind of hope it's more toward the curation side. Um, mm-hmm. There's, you know, when you go on to like Google News, for example, which is all purely algorithmic, um, you know, rarely in my Google News page am I getting the best article on a subject. Right. Uh, it's only after I sort of expand that story and dig around, I see, oh, here's probably a much better article, and I click on that. Um, there's just, you know, in the same way with music, with news, there just needs to be curation. That, and I'm, I'm really, it's going to be fascinating to watch Apple do this because with news, um, you know, an algorithm, and they say that on the on the developer page, they say that it's going to be done with editors and advanced algorithms combined. Right. <laughs> so yeah, which I mean, to be honest, you know, even with iTunes Radio, you know, the part that's behind Beats One is going to be heavily algorithmically sure. driven so in both cases there's a combination of the two and i guess it's to some extent the question of the balance between the two right and but the specific role given to the humans in the process but but i mean if there's like a big topic in the news right and let's say rolling stone happens to be the one who's that's written sort of the the definitive article on the subject mm-hmm. you know that's the one i want to see like that's right. the one i want surface to me and and algorithms don't always do that very well and so mm-hmm. you know and t- it takes momentum rather for that article to be getting enough links and then google news surfaces it right but uh you know a curator could do that so much better and more quickly but you know it depends on the quality of the editors that they're hiring mm-hmm. so yeah absolutely yeah and there's, a whole big question. there's a whole big question too here about 
human beings sitting between us, the news that we consume, you know, whether it's Facebook and what they've done recently with instant articles or this Apple right. News app, you know, there's always a concern about it. Somebody else is filtering what I'm seeing, you know, does that, and especially if it's based on my preferences as expressed through what I've read and recommended and so on before, you right. know, does that reinforce a certain sort of fairly insular view of the world um, that's either driven by my own preferences or driven by somebody else's preferences? But yeah, and interesting question uh, too. On a privacy standpoint, that's going to be an interesting thing, too, because I know mm -hmm. on stage they said that it's they're not going to be tracking the articles that you read in the right. news app, which sort of raises the question of how they're going to know or mm -hmm. predict what other news you might want to see other than deliberate specific you know preferences that you've expressed. Right. So Yeah, yeah, well, that's another big question. So it's going to feels like, as we wrap up here, it feels like that's something of a theme of the discussion we've had today, is that lots of interesting stuff on these Apple announcements, but lots of questions still. Um, I think both about the music service and, and Beats One and how that will work, but also about the news app and some of the details of the, the editorial curation and everything else that's a part of that. So, you know, obviously with the music app and Beats One, we'll know later this month. Uh, with the news app, we, we may have to wait another couple of months after that, but hopefully all will be revealed in the end. Right. Um, well, thank you, Aaron, as always, and thank you for listening to, to both of us. As a reminder, as a weekly podcast, um, we'll be back next week. And we have to figure out what we're going to talk about next week as the buzz from WWDC dies down. But the other thing is that uh, we invite your feedback and questions and especially invite your submissions for the question of the week segment that we do in the middle of the episode each week. Uh, last week we talked about the open sourcing of Swift. This week we talked about the Beats One DJs. Uh, we invite your questions on anything related to Apple that you might be wondering about or think other people might be wondering about. And we'd love to do a deep dive on something that uh, that's of interest to you. So I'm Jan Dawson. Uh, Aaron Miller has been my co-host. We thank you for joining us and look forward to being with you again next week. <laughs>